Um, tonight we're going to dive into Psalm 69. So even just now, if you want to grab a Bible or um, go and find some Bibles um, up the back, it's going to be really helpful. In a little bit, Roderick's going to come and read. And it's a total treat tonight because Roderick's going to read the whole Psalm. Um, and when I saw Roderick was down to do that, my heart lifted. So it's great. This is, a, this is a, a psalm that talks about what starts to happen when pieces of your life could actually come together. Um, I don't know what it's like for you, but I sometimes have situations in my life that can feel like they don't belong in church. I was hanging out with the students this week who were unbelievable. There's an amazing student team and student group at this church, and, and we were chatting and saying, what, what happens when you don't really want to worship? I lead a lot of worship here, and I've been passionate about that for a really long time, but I have these cases where something happens in my life, and it's like, I, I don't get it. I don't feel like the songs that I would sing to God of adoration and thankfulness, and that he's great actually fit. I have moments in my life where the thing that I want to say to God is that I am really confused about why this is happening and I'm coming to get you. I had a situation a couple of years ago and it was a, a really tough family situation that um, brought in a whole new bunch of anger and uh, fear to my life. And I was talking about this with the students and it was like, instead of this sense of disconnection, I felt like when I was worshiping God, or even when I was like up here, I just would kind of spit at God, and I went at God. And um, one, of, one of our team in a sort of follow-up meeting said, hey, you were kind of bloody-minded about things tonight. What, what was that? And I realized that for me, when life doesn't go the way I planned it, I go for God. I actually kind of want to put him against the wall by the collar and say, what are you doing? Why is this happening? Like, where are you? What are you, what are you doing? Other times it might show up and we just cut it off. Maybe there's something uncomfortable that happens and we just sort of separate it. We say it doesn't really fit our faith or it didn't really fit what we wanted. Um, and I got so kind of focused and intense about this that there was one service here that in the middle of a song, my voice just kind of pinged. And it, I just lost it. And for probably seven, eight weeks, I had very, very little voice. Um, I would be sometimes unconfident in singing at the best of times. And it felt like someone had just like un, undone my voice. God. And it was very strange. It's not very useful when uh, your job is to do that most weeks. It's even less useful when Easter was like three weeks away and you had umpteen services. But I have this thing where sometimes life doesn't go my way and I want to throw it at God. I don't know how you do it, but I feel like tonight we get a chance to maybe do a bit of that together. I believe that worship is a place where all of us can meet all of God, where we can dance without fear and we can kneel in reverence before God, where everything about us has some sense of belonging. 
It can be really, really easy to carve off bits of ourselves and things that we feel or fights that we've had with friends or relationships that have have broken off and we can just kind of carve them out. We've been doing that for, for years. Sometimes we've separated the head and the heart and we said, you know, God, these are two separate bits. So I don't know about you, maybe you look down on folks or you get frustrated at folks who are really all about the feeling and all about the heart and they just love to express that. Or, or maybe you're a bit judgy about folks who love the, the thinking and the academia and the reading and the study. But we've done this thing where we split up the head and the heart. And maybe, maybe we do that kind of usefully. You might have played a game of football with someone who's normally just a really good, fun, fun person, fun guy, nice guy. And then you go and play fives, and they're terrifying. You get this, ball, ball, here, head. And it, 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 I mean, I'm not naming anyone that I've seen in this church. They're not here tonight. But it's like a whole other person. Something gets like separated and put into just that space. And it's maybe less welcome at church if someone's not getting your attention. And we can do this all the time. We can split parts off. We can think, you know, the mind is one thing, the body is another. And, you know, we can think about God and we can study God and we can know God, but the body is fleshly and its desires are wrong. And then, you know, we kind of pat that one out. And then we wonder why everyone's loving yoga suddenly, because it offers something that says, hey, come and connect with the body. We can split off mind and body. We can split off things we think are presentable and things we think are, are not presentable. We can split off emotions we think are cool for church and emotions we think aren't cool for, for anyone to see. Some of these things that we think are really presentable, they feel like they're in the light. And the things that we feel we have to kind of carve off, maybe some of those um, big questions or angry feelings we got about God, they get to go into a kind of shadowy corner place. I believe God welcomes us as we are, and he wants to lead us into who we are. God brings us as we are. He wants to lead us into who we really are. I think that's his plan. I think that's what he loves to do. I think that's the really important thing that happens when we gather together in the church. Because David here is unleashing to God some stuff. This isn't a psalm which is just kind of, I, I praise you on the harp and I praise you with the symbols and you are, are wonderful beyond comprehension. It's a pretty uncomfortable psalm. It doesn't really make for a great worship song, so you won't really find it in many of the, the lyrics. But this psalm is a, is a display of someone who is rejoining and reconnecting all the pieces of their life which need to come together in God. The psalm has someone who needs rescue. The psalm has someone who is angry. The psalm has someone who needs some kind of connection that's been broken off in so many different ways. And this is an outpouring that says, God, I need you to meet all the parts of me. I need you to meet all of the pieces of me. When we start to experience God as a stranger, often it's because we've stopped relating to that part of who we are. 
If we don't think that God is okay with our anger towards him, towards someone else, that'll start to feel like a strange place. If we are driven, if we're ambitious, and we don't think God welcomes that, we'll start to relate to God in a strange way. And the beauty of something tonight, which we're about to read, is that God wants to bring all of who we are together into him. And so we're going to hear this psalm, and then we're going to walk through some different parts of it. Roderick. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters, where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying, and my throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing. I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has heaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment and I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink, and let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it, and deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. 
Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than ox or bull, which has horn and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your heart shall live. For the Lord hears the poor, and he does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Roderick. It's like all three Lord of the Rings films in a wonder. It's phenomenal. It's good. Still with me? <laughs> good. All right, this psalm kicks off with David. Now, here's a guy who's lived in a good state all his life up until a lot of this point. He's had a lot of victory. He's been pretty smart. He essentially um, slayed a giant and was absolutely revered by those around him. And I wonder if he did that out of great intentions, but he also did that because there was a bit of a prize involved. There would have been a bit of money and there would have been a bride that he could have taken. And David is the kind of guy who sees this giant, Goliath, as we hear the story, messing with um, God's people. And he goes down and he walks onto the battlefield with no armor in front of this behemoth. And he pulls out his slingshot, swings it round. He's, he's an accurate sniper, takes Goliath out, cuts off his head, and is revered from this point on. He's a victorious kind of guy. In a lot of ways, David was trusting in God, and he knew that, but David was also essentially bringing a pistol to a knife fight. A guy who's got a slingshot with that kind of accuracy would be like bringing a little gun to um, a mixed martial arts match. And David then goes through his life, and he achieves power, and he becomes king. And he knows how to, to get what he's for in the world. He experiences the victory of God and God's presence and loyalty so often that I wonder if by this point he's kind of forgotten it. And I wonder if by this point it just senses for him it's run out. That for him he's actually, what got him up to this point isn't going to get him any further in his life. He's got this anxiety flooding up all throughout the psalm at different points. He's, he's pretty alone. There's this a spiritual loneliness in the guy. There's a social loneliness. He feels cut off. He's emotionally isolated. He's, he's cut himself off. And he goes to God with this plea. And that can just be a spot that we're all in at different points, hey? Like, I love coming to church, but I know the moments in the week where I just get this kind of lowness and quietness on me and I know that I need to actually draw close to God and speak my heart speak my mind David's alone so God meets him there and after he he begins to deck it out there's four things that pop up 
in this psalm. David asked for a rescue. David asked for reconciliation. David asked for revenge. And David asked for redemption. And he does this in this way. This isn't a crafted, short little poem, Sam. This is a splurge. This is a rant. This is a sense that, God, I need you to get this. God, I need to know that you're actually still involved in my life. He starts asking for a rescue. This is the guy who killed the giants, then killed the giant's sons, who had hundreds of men at his back, who had great friends and warriors, and now he's begging for a rescue. He's begging for a liftoff. He says, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. This rescue he's requesting is a call out. It's not polite. It's not a request to God. It's a cry. Rescue doesn't sound polite. I've um, had to be rescued on my uh, canoe or lack of canoe um, once before. And rescue wasn't an option. It just happened to us. It happened because somebody saw us fall out of a boat and claw our way back onto a little island and look freezing. I didn't wave. I didn't have a flare. I didn't have a phone I shot off. We were just grabbed. And this rescue he's requesting here is pretty brash. David is just saying, God, don't let this happen. Do not let me sink. Rescue doesn't always sound like a polite request. It sounds like a demand of God. Have you ever got to that point with God and just called out for that or demanded something almost of God? Do not let me sink, God. Our need for rescue can appear as a sense of maybe anxiety in our lives and and pressure beyond what we feel we can handle day to day. And there's a real beauty that the Psalms actually give some kind of pattern that say, do you know what? This is for you to bring to God. Here's a hero. Here's someone who was a king who can bring their own anxiety to the living God. <coughs> David calls for rescue. And then in verse 16 on, he he calls for a reconciliation. He calls out for forgiveness. He says, you know how I'm scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn's broken my heart, has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. <coughs> Again, David isn't giving a lovely flouncy psalm. He's kind of just whinging. If he sat down and said this to me, I'd be like, bro, shut up. Like, get over yourself. People aren't putting vinegar in your food. And come on, pull your act together. But David has this sense of just deep lack. He's got a hope for forgiveness with God. And there's another piece of how we can come to God tonight. Just really raw, really open, and saying, I got stuff in my life that hasn't gone well. I've broken a few things, and I need you, God. I actually need some hope. I actually need some forgiveness. Maybe forgiveness is what you want to actually be part of tonight. All the pieces that we can, we can carve off and put away, 
all of our anger or relationships that we feel have crashed out, um, maybe we put them in the corner or we just stuff them back and we don't really fancy presenting them. Maybe God just says, do you know what? You can bring that if you want. If you've got the king, the psalmist, someone who was called a man after God's own heart, if you've got him basically begging God for forgiveness and reconciliation, maybe there's not much in our life that God's not up for engaging with and taking in our lives. God's stance of his goodness towards us, as David knew there, is a stance of forgiveness. It's an offer of forgiveness at every moment. Jesus going to the cross, that beautiful um, part that we sang about, that freely he gave us all for us, is this invitation of how much value, kindness, and mercy is on offer for everything in our lives. One beautiful idea about forgiveness is that it allows us to go back to a place of former giving. That's really impacted me recently, that when, when we might think of Jesus, he's not measuring, okay, what have you done this week that doesn't really match up? And I'll give you in proportion to that. Jesus is one who would go back to the cross, back to himself and say, who am I? And will pour life from that place. If you need forgiveness, if you need peace in your life, then there's not a measure of that that Jesus is just coming up with right now for what you're going through. He has so much peace, so much forgiveness for anything that is with us. David is calling for reconciliation. But then his state kind of spirals all the more. And this is a part that does feel a little bit uncomfortable being in the Psalms, being in the Scriptures. I can imagine him just kind of praying through this or suggesting it as a song. You know, maybe he's praying from verse 22. Lord, I just pray that the table set before these people would be a snare. May it become retribution and a trap, Lord. God, I pray that their eyes would be darkened and they cannot see. Yes, I pray that um, their backs would be bent forever, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray you'd pour your wrath out on them. Lord, I pray that you'd let your fierce anger overtake them. Like, this is, this is not the kind of prayer that we get to pray usually. David is furious. Commentator J.C. Lenny says, Perhaps there's no part of the Bible that gives more perplexity and pain to its readers than this. Perhaps nothing that constitutes a more plausible objection to the belief that the Psalms are the productions of inspired men than the spirit of revenge, which they sometimes seem to breathe, and the spirit of cherished malice and implacableness with which the writer seems to manifest. There's something about these Psalms that you read them and think, this doesn't belong in the Bible. This is not okay. Why did that get in there? Why did that become canon? Why did that become something that we're speaking on tonight? I mean, this guy is like, I want you to blind them, break their backs, poison them at my own table. He's like, he's brutal. I feel like he's kind of got that equivalent of inviting them to his house for tea. And as they sit down, he's doing the, pulling the chair away from them. Like, he's just mean. He is cruel in this. So why does this belong? Why does he want to see them homeless? Why does it offend us? 
think we get offended by these psalms because probably something in us hopefully believes that um, people who are Christians don't think like that. But what if we do? Like, what if we are angry and vengeful and seething and offended? What do we do with that? It doesn't turn off the moment we ask Jesus to come into our lives. We don't get to just like switch off the anger button or dial down all these feelings. They're real. So either we act on them or we deny them or we place them somewhere else. A lot of the things that anger us and, and cause us that pain, it then just invites us to think, where do we want to place that? So we either take it into our own hands and we, we move on people and we act in vengeance and we try and tear their name down, we gossip, we slander, we cut them out, we carve them off. Or maybe we just stuff it away. We stuff the anger away. We think, hey, it doesn't belong in church, so I'll just get on being nice. But we lose out on something that we truly want to bring to the world. Or this other part where maybe we place it in God's hands. Maybe we place our anger and we get to place everything that we experience in God's hands. Psalms like this invite us to face down and look at all the pieces in ourselves that we'd maybe shoved off and carved off. And there's something about them that lets us actually take responsibility for what we want to do with anger and being upset and being annoyed. And it allows us to take responsibility for what experience we're having of our circumstances. The Psalms give us as worshippers a narrative of their own feelings. And it shows David actually starting to process the anger, process the upset. Whatever's going on in, in you tonight, could it belong in God? If you've experienced a grief that's moved to anger, could that belong in a conversation with God? If you've experienced disappointment in your life, could that belong in a conversation with God? Krish Kandaya, who wrote the book God is Stranger, unpacks a story about a guy called Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl was um, an Austrian. I wrote Australian in my notes. I'm really glad I didn't say that. <laughs> he was an Austrian psychiatrist who spent time in Auschwitz and Kofring, a camp connected to Dachau in World War II. He was Jewish, and so he was um, imprisoned after a while. His mother, his brother, his father, and his wife were all killed in concentration camps or forced ghettos. And um, the story goes of Viktor Frankl that he was, was in Auschwitz. And on his first couple of nights, he was terrified, petrified, literally watching people lose their minds around him people screaming out in the night in terror. And he went through his own process of that. This fear gripped him, and he found himself just losing it, just losing it. And he asked himself this realization in the middle of the terror, and say that he wondered if, would that be the most useful way to be in that situation? Whilst he's terrified in the night, whilst he's in this horrible horrible circumstance he gets to observe and he gets to think is this my most useful response 
to these feelings, to this situation. And so he then turns around and the next morning begins to engage the guards differently. So where before they were purely rulers and there was a sense that they were the masters and the others were just dogs, he would say, good morning. And then the guard responded, good morning. And this continued over a pattern where he engaged them in conversation as human beings. And over time, a relationship would form with some of the guards. He'd get to know about their children and what they did outside of the space. And there'd be times, story goes, where people were lined up for processing and guards would pull Victor out of the line saying, not this guy. Back to where you go. And Chris Kandaya highlights that Victor Frankl made an observation on his release that this, between stimulus and response, there's a space. Between something happening to us and the way we respond to it, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. So you realize that responsibility is made up of the words response and ability. And they have an offering there that the Psalms give us something that allows us to get resource, to process what is our response to suffering? What is our response to anger and feelings that we have? The Psalm ends with this change from vengeance and drive for that. And it lands in this place as we, as we come down into it. At 30, he says, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. And it goes on, and I, I was reading that thinking, well, what is this bit now? We've just had the most violent outpouring of death and destruction upon people in the scriptures that, that I've read about someone. You know, this guy literally is like, God, I just pray that their backs would break and they'd be homeless. God, I pray that their families would have no food. This guy is like aggressive. And now it's turned to thanksgiving. <coughs> a cynical bit in me wonders if this is when he brought it to the church to sing or the director of music. And they were like, do you know what? It's nice, but that whole kind of super honest thing isn't really what we're for right now. We kind of need a bridge that's just going to land it. Like we need a wee bit of resolution. You know, we're not really going for the fault in our stars or the green mile here. We want Disney. We want something else. I feel like the label wasn't too chuffed with it. It's that like worship album with the swear word. That didn't go very well. Where are they now? So why is this here then? Like, does David even actually believe that? After what he just said? It's a bit of a gear change in the prayer. Father, I just pray that you would take away uh, all their, their health and their families. And I praise you, I worship you, hallelujah. What's going on? I wonder if sometimes in this, there's another piece that just gives us a beautiful example of what it means to be whole in God. Is it that we choose a desire to believe that sometimes is more powerful than a blind belief? 
Is it a choice of wanting to believe? Because maybe that's all we've got at times. It's not that we have a convinced, passionate, reasoned understanding of who God is and we celebrate from there. Sometimes maybe all you got is this longing and little desire to believe. And I think there's something of that coming through in David. A choice that says, maybe there's a better way. Maybe the future could be better. Maybe one day I could praise you. Maybe one day the hate will actually find itself somewhere else. According to uh, Peter Thiel, he writes that optimism is simply the belief that the future can be better than today. Being an optimist can sometimes be seen as being irrational and unrealistic. But I like that definition of it. Do you think tomorrow can be better than today for yourself, for the world about you? Even being pessimistic, even if you are the deepest cynic who shreds everything and every piece of information you see, even something of that is a desire that tomorrow would be better than today, that we'd have more truth in tomorrow. And I believe this is what um, David is trying to get at here. He holds this hope. Could tomorrow be better than today? This is redemption at the end of the story. It isn't always a plan. It isn't always a royal gripping faith. Sometimes it looks like the aftershock of being shown grace. So we have all these things. We've got King David who needs rescued, who's crying out for it. Needs reconciliation, needs forgiveness. Hungers for revenge, is bluntly honest about what's going on in him. And calls out for redemption, has some kind of hope for things tomorrow being better than today. And I want to encourage us tonight that the parts of us that we've clawed off, the parts of us that are angry, or the parts of us that we don't think need rescued, those will be parts that will feel strange. If we isolate them from God, then obviously we therefore see God as stranger. But if we were to actually say, my anger, my uncertainty, my shame, my ambition, my hope, all finds a place in Jesus Christ, perhaps there's a possibility for us to see life. So let's be praying on those and let's be thinking about what that could mean for tomorrow.